Hey, if you're a mother, happy Mother's Day. We have chocolate bars out there for you if you want a chocolate bar. If not, you can always sell it on eBay later on. But go ahead and take one anyway, because we'll likely have those left over. Um, Hey, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ephesians. We are going through a series. If you are new here or have not been here in a while, we're going through a series in the book of Ephesians called Coram Deo. Quorum just means face-to-face, Deo means with God, so we're talking about living face-to-face with God, living in his presence, under his authority, and to his glory. And it's been a great series for us, and today is going to be a fascinating passage, at least it is for me, Um, and I think it might be helpful for some of us, especially on a day like Mother's Day, all right? There's really no sermon out there that you could preach just on Mother's Day. This will either be very helpful or very difficult for you. But look in Ephesians 3, this is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to go ahead and read it all to you, and then we'll just take a little bit more of a pedestrian walk through it. This is Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus, a very young church, a very unique church in the fact that it's blended, okay? Blended in the fact that not everybody looks the same. Not everybody has the same backgrounds. So it's important to know that as you hear these words. For this reason, I, Paul, A prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit." This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Okay, so we'll just pause right there. Uh, you know, I, some of you know I'm a big culture honk. I like to follow culture and its movement. It's something that's fascinating to me. And one of the more fascinating aspects of following culture and how it moves is to see how new words are added to our dictionary. You see it happen through the news occasionally, a new word was added to our lexicon, how we talk back and forth. I don't know if you know this, but Merriam-Webster, they actually have a team of editors that this is all they do. They sit down and they read magazine articles or blogs, really any kind of periodical, and all they do is look for new words, which is interesting because whenever I read an article, if I find a new word, I usually quit reading at that point. I don't want to see any new words. I just want to understand what's going on. But they will scour the article, and when they find a new word... They make a little notation. If they see enough of those notations for a new word, they take special interest. And if they see it coming from different kinds of periodicals, so maybe something from a TMZ article, 
Yet it was also mentioned in the Washington Post, two different things. Yet it was also mentioned on Fox News, in someone's blog, you know. Whenever they start to see it coming from different areas, then they take very special notice, right? So for instance, in March of this year, cryptocurrency was added to our dictionary. Now cryptocurrency is officially a word. I don't know if you knew that or not, right? But think about it, that wouldn't have been very helpful 50 or 60 years ago, cryptocurrency. I mean, half of us in the room now probably don't even, wouldn't, wouldn't know how to define that. But that, along with 850 other brand new words, were added to our language. But just consider some other words in culture that wouldn't have made sense 60, 70 years ago, like meme or social media, right? Or cellular phone. These wouldn't have even made any sense. Now, those are technological parts of culture, and that tends to move the fastest within culture. But just take some of the sociological parts of culture. Look at PTSD. I mean, it's always been around. It's not like we just now found out about that. I mean, it's been going on for a long time, and we slapped the title to it. But PTSD is something that we have only been calling PTSD for a short amount of time. What about gender fluidity? That's something that's kind of new-ish, it feels like. 70 years ago, people weren't really using that. Here's, here's another term that is going to help us greatly today that's not been around for very long, irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable differences, right? Back in 1969, the state of California was the very first state in our union to introduce no-fault divorce. And that was around the time that you started hearing the phrase irreconcilable difference a lot. And all it's defined as is any difference or set of differences right, that keeps a people from really getting on the same page. They won't change. They can't change. It could be personality. It could be belief. It could be character. Some states don't use the word irreconcilable. They'll use irremediable or irretrievable or incompatible. It's all the same thing, though. For us, irreconcilable differences is the word we throw out there whenever we can't really point to one thing that keeps us from doing life with somebody, but it's just a bunch of stuff we can't really put our finger on. It's just not working out. So it's therefore irreconcilable. Now what's interesting to me is after 20 years of being a pastor, and I've done my fair share of premarital counseling and weddings, it's typically our differences that make us attractive to each other. It's typically our differences that cause us and provoke us to want to build a life together. They're, they're not irreconcilable, they're attractive. But at some point along the way, we wake up and we realize what used to be kind of cute, it's not really cute anymore, right? Where that used to be attractive, not so anymore. And now it's just kind of irreconcilable. Now I'm hijacking this word because it's a marital term, right? But I'm going to use it today to describe any relationship for you that is not working. Any relationship for you that is not working, right? Now last week we looked at some of the nonsensical walls that we could build between us and those around us. Any kind of a wall that we can build that has been brought down by Jesus and the work that he has done for us. So because of what Adam in the garden because of what we saw there, a wall of hostility arose because we built it. And that's what Paul calls it in the passage right before this. A wall of hostility was there between us and God. Jesus does this very miraculous thing by crossing over that wall of hostility. 
He's, he's coming to retrieve the irretrievable. He's coming to us. He's leaving a very beautiful place where he was communing with the fellowship of the Godhead, and he's coming to a people that don't look like him. They don't sound like him. And what does he do? He recovers us. He brings us close to him, and he brings us into this new thing, this thing called the church, with no walls. Now not only is the wall of hostility between God and man brought low, now there should be no wall between us and our neighbor. So last week we spent our time looking at kind of the macro differences that we have with people around us. We did that on purpose. We looked at why that there is a, a struggle between black and white. Skin color just in general, or age, or economics, or political affiliations. And maybe where some of us have been blind to these walls around us. About how many, many of us, we see the walls, but we've not been very good at pulling them down. We've just accepted that they are there. Today's passage is actually going to carry us in a very similar direction to last week, but it's going to allow us to zoom in and personalize it. Less macro, a little bit more micro. Because we have people around us that we have irreconcilable or irretrievable differences with. We all do. We all do. Last week, we also spent a lot of time focusing on the irreconcilable differences between Jew and Gentile, specifically those two, because those are the two that are blending mainly in this church that Paul is having to speak to. Really, the only thing we have today, we learned last week, that came even close to what we see between Jew and Gentile is the defiant wall that still stands between white and those who are not white. That's probably the closest thing we have. So I think we can understand a little bit. And this is a main concern for Paul because he has this new church he's talking to. And it's blended beautifully, but it's blended with people that had at one time some very heavy, irreconcilable differences. Some irremediable moments. Irretrievable lives. So Paul is laboring for them to drop that and reconcile. A little bit easier said than done. That's why he's having to write this. So let's just walk through it, go back to Ephesians 3.1, and let's see how this is going to help us see Jesus a little bit more clearly today. Verse 1 of chapter 3, where we started. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Listen, if we were just to pause just right there, what I love about Paul, if you caught this, is that he is riding, remember, with chains around him. We went over this in the first two weeks. He's in prison. This is a prison epistle. He is riding with guards around him. We don't know if the chains are around his ankle or around his waist. I don't know how all that worked out, if it was around his wrist. But we know that he was under guard in a prison environment. These are things that we do know about, right? He was not allowed to roam free. If anyone was going to see him, they would have to come and visit him. This would have been very difficult for him. And yet, he only considers Jesus to be his master. Paul is not a prisoner of Caesar. He's a prisoner of Jesus here. That's what he says. I was so tempted to blast a sermon out just on this one verse. It's super easy. Because Paul is not looking at his imprisonment as a problem for mission here. He's stuck in a place where we would all say it's not a very influential place. But yet he's very influential from here. Those chains, not really much of a hindrance for him. In fact, I think it's probably an opportunity I need to see this. I personally need to see that something was so intoxicating for Paul that he saw no problem. All he saw was opportunity. I need this because when the chains get tight around me, 
I can start to be inflective and not want to be on mission. I can get straight up whiny, right? Maybe you can get like this too. Work is hard. Maybe some of the cracks in your marriage starting to get a little bit wider. The kids are difficult. Money is thin. Any one of those things is enough to kind of knock you off your center, right? You start adding two or three or four or ten of those things, it's really difficult to look at your neighbor who has their own set of addictions, right? It's really hard to look at somebody at work that you're trying to develop a relationship with and actually be on mission. In fact, that might seem a little inappropriate, because you're so burdened yourself. Man, I can get like this. I could get like this where I can get so heavy laden with all of the chains and all of the, what, what feels like a prison, and then I see my neighbor, and the first thing I think is, I hope that works out for you. I hope you're doing okay. I'm not gonna ask, but I hope you're doing okay. We have this idea that we'll be good missionaries and better missionaries if God would just get rid of our problem. If God gets rid of our problems, we can get rid of other people's problems. If God could make my path clear before me, then I can invest in others. Paul sees these chains, though, but not confinement. We see something very different with him. He knows God is positioning him where he wants him, and he knows that where he is weakest, God is strong. Again, if this was a sermon I was going to preach, and I'm not preaching it. This is not me preaching this sermon right now. I think some of us can easily hide behind chains waiting for them to come off before we're healthy missionaries to the city. It's very easy to do. Not making disciples because we're in a tough season. But yet we have Paul leading us here in a very beautiful form of leadership, so we can take a cue from him. All right, we got to move on. Verse 2, verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you could perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, the mystery is not that Gentiles would be recovered and be people of God. That's not a mystery. They already knew that was going to happen. That's what you would call old news. That's old as the Old Testament. We see God talking to Abraham and saying this in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families, even the Gentile ones, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then we see God say it through the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. All the people, even the Gentiles. The mystery is not the Gentiles would be people of God. The mystery is this, that they would be people of God with the Jews in this new thing called the church. Now that's new. Now that's new. That has not been the case up to this point. This thing called the church, brand new. The word church just means ecclesia, or ecclesia is what gives us the word church. All it means is gathered, grouped, assembled, brought together, combined, however you want to say it. But what has been assembled here in Ephesus are people with irreconcilable differences, a very different people. I mean, they just couldn't agree on anything other than that they just can't agree on anything. But now they're neighbors with no walls. No, 
no real divisions, just distinctions, but not divisions. Can you see how hard this would be? I mean, this is a great mystery, this whole thing. And I would say it's a mystery that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, hear me, let, let, me, let this help you a little bit, the fact that only the Holy Spirit can do this. Because when you look at the world today and you wonder why everyone just can't get along, why can't everyone just get along? Why do we all have to hate each other? Why can't we all just love one another? You understand, it can't happen without the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit to break down those walls. That's what we're seeing. Now, what we will do in culture is we will do two primary things to try to bring down walls of differences between groups of people or even just families. One will be education and the other one will be inspiration. That's what I typically see. We'll see education. If we cram enough into textbooks, if we have some college clinics, if we have some get-together moments where we can educate people why hate is stupid, then they just won't hate anymore. If we just tell people why racism is illogical, they will stop being racist. But education doesn't do anything except educate you on what the wall looks like, why it's there. Go ahead and take a class. It'll tell you why you're on one side of the wall and why someone else is on the other side of the wall, but it won't tear the wall down. It just paints an accurate depiction of the wall. Maybe it's a first step, surely, but it's not going to tear the wall down. Inspiration, it tries to do the exact same thing with just the same effect. You cannot inspire people to rip down differences between them and others where there's been hate involved. You can't hashtag a wall down, right? I mean, as of this morning, This Is America has had 98 million views, right? 90, so Childish Gambino puts out a video this week. It's a fascinating video. It's a fascinating video. If you haven't seen it, you should go and watch it. Don't watch it with your kids there, okay? Because it's got some violence in it. But it is fascinating what is being, what is being brought. And, and hear my words now publicly. You will see more videos come out just like that because it has been so powerful. It has been so powerful and so viral and has provoked so much discussion. Now everybody's going to start putting that kind of intentionality into their videos, right? For good or for bad. That's what's going to happen, right? 98 million people. But listen... That's probably not going to change things like you think it's going to change. Because I remember back in 1985 when We Are the World came out. Y'all remember We Are the World with Lionel Richie and Michael Jackson? I mean, it came and it went. It's inspiring. It's, it's great. It's a high-five moment. It did not tear any walls down. Not that we can see today. Education is not going to get it done. It might be a step. Inspiration is not going to get it done. It might be a step. The Holy Spirit is going to be required to pull down those walls. It is a Holy Spirit matter. So whenever you say to yourself, when you look at the news and you see yet another person hating another person, whether they beat them, arrest them, slander them, and they do something wrong, and you think to yourself, why can't we all just get along? You have to understand that this is something that only the Holy Spirit can do in the hearts of man. Only him. I mean, we're talking about a spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's how strong of a spirit we need for something like racism or bringing walls down. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. It'll be up on the screen. For in one spirit, the same spirit we're talking about, we were all baptized into one body, one ecclesia, one church, one gathered people. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So now here's a question that a lot of people ask. Why does Paul talk so much about this when Jesus doesn't? 
I mean, Jesus isn't chirping up a whole bunch about how we all need to be good neighbors with each other, but it's just usually just Paul talking about it, right? The revelation of this mystery of the church, it was foretold by Christ, but it wasn't explained by Jesus. He brought it for the first time, and then the rest was given to Paul and his gang to kind of work out. So when Jesus brought it, it was a little bit of a cliffhanger. We see it in Matthew 16 most clearly. That's where he is speaking, and he's around the disciples, and he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's the first time we see Jesus use it, the word, it's ecclesia, gathered. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? Now the details of this thing called the church, doctrine, position, who leads it, how do you join it, stuff like that, that was committed to Paul and the other apostles and administrated by the Holy Spirit. So at this point, it's super easy to say, well, then this looks easy. Jesus tears down the wall of hostility that stands between us and God, and a byproduct and piece of the fruit is that the walls come down between me and you, and you and me, and our differences are put down in the name of community and grace and love. Then why can't we do this? I mean, sure, it'll be, it'll be tough, but why don't we just do it? Let's look and zoom in just a little bit more. Again, last week we looked at macro categories like skin color and age. But what if we zoomed in just a little bit? Because I knew it would be easy for last week for many people to walk out without their hearts being challenged because it's just too easy for us to stand back and say, I don't have a problem with immigrants. Come on. I don't have a problem with old people or millennials. I don't have a problem with people who are impoverished. I don't have a problem with them because it's a broad demographic. And it's easy for us to say that. But can we just talk for a minute about the people that you do have a problem with? If we were to zoom in, what if we take this as an opportunity to focus on those you have irreconcilable differences with, so much hostility that you cannot do life with them anymore? This might be a parent. It might be a sibling. It could be a spouse. In-laws, folks at work, Folks around where you live, folks you grew up with. I mean, there's, you could fill in the blank. It's a pretty big blank. A lot of people fit into that blank. See, remember, the mystery of this passage is not that Jew and Gentile are saved. It's that they are reconciled. That's the mystery here. That's really what Paul is provoking, his thought in that direction. Paul is not just saying, hey, you guys need to start going to church together and quit being donkeys with each other. Put all your pettiness down, shake hands, you sit there, you sit there, now we can all worship. Everyone ready? That's not what's going on here. He's actually encouraging to be on mission towards those they have irreconcilable differences with. To be on mission towards them. To strive to reconcile to strive to see disciples made of people that you used to hate. That sounds really hard, but he's writing this with chains around him too at the same time, right? You see, I think one of the biggest reasons we struggle with our personal irreconcilable differences and being on mission for their good and for God's glory is that we are not truly convinced, not truly, not truly convinced that God is that glorious and that he is that gracious. I know we get it. I know we agree on it. And if I was to hand out a pop quiz, we would all put true. God is good. God is great. He is glorious. He is gracious. But it might not have permeated our heart. So then it's just kind of boring. 
It's good news, but kind of boring news. It's not captivating. So there's not much to ponder, meditate, or marvel over. Definitely not much to talk about, right? We all have those subjects in our lives. I've got them too, right? Like the NBA. I was thinking about it this morning. I get it. It's basketball. Everybody loves it. I just, not so much. We're Thai food. Not big on Thai food. We're cats. I'm not a kitty cat guy. Or Game of Thrones. Figure skating. I got a long list. I got a long list of stuff I'd be a very poor ambassador of because I just don't care. And if you trap me in a conversation about those things, I'll get bored really fast and I'll make up a reason to get away from you at that point. Now here's not the problem. The problem is that I don't know enough facts about cats or Thai food. It's not that I've not been educated enough on those things. It's just that they haven't got my heart. I'm kind of bored, uncaptivated, and I just don't care. Likewise, I think the real problem is not a lack of knowledge of how beautiful God is. We've been given the word, and we've been God in the flesh come and lived among us, lived, died, and lived again. It's not that we don't know enough. It's just that it's not captured our hearts. It's not captured our hearts. We're not affected by those things. It's not overwhelming to us. Here's an interesting quote. We've read the first part of it several times. We've never really finished it. It's Charles Spurgeon, and he says, Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Now that we've heard several times. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ, or else you do not love him at all. Whoops. It cannot be, he says, that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. Now that just seems too drastic. Charles, it sounds like you're crossing a line, right? How can you say I don't love him? just because I don't ever talk about him, or ever think about him, or ever meditate or marvel over him. I mean, maybe, maybe I don't. Here's the question, not can we explain the reason for the hope that we have. I mean, I think most of us probably can, but can you explain the reason for the hope that you have and have it show up in the inflection of your voice and your eyes and how it's captured your heart and your attention, how it has wrestled you away from the things of this world. Can you tell it that way? Brian Chappell says it this way. is a very helpful passage for me personally. He says, being enraptured, I like that word, being enraptured with grace is the nature of Christian calling. Such awe of grace certifies our calling as genuine and energizes it in the face of sacrifice. The truly called are so enraptured by the grace of God toward them that the attacks of others, the difficulties of circumstances, their lack of worldly comfort, and their lack of recognition in what the world do not dissuade them from the joy of proclaiming Christ. He's, he's talking about what Paul is writing from right now as he is in chains. Now here's the good news for you and me because when we read passages like that, it's a bit much. It feels heavy. But the good news is even our dissatisfaction with God, our underwhelmedness of God, does not provoke him to create distance between him and us or for him to punish us. In fact, it doesn't move his approval of his children at all. That's important. I mean, is that not the best part of the good news? That when you fail at being enraptured, that when you are bored, that God does not look at you and say, you're bored? Well, 
I'll just create a little bit more distance between me and you. I'll wait for you to not be bored. He doesn't do that. His approval is the same. His love is the same. It's grace. It's not given to us because we're attractive. It's grace given to us because we're ugly sometimes. It's despite us. I mean, Jesus is our reconciler who found us behind our own wall that we created, and he retrieved us, the irretrievable. Came and got us, brought us to himself, and collects us into this new human structure, this ecclesia, gathered people, where there are no more walls between us. And I love it that as a rescued child in God's family, I'm just as much free to fail as I am to succeed. And I'm allowed to do that alongside you. So now with Jesus as our cornerstone, we are free to build next to those that we have an irreconcilable difference with because the one we had vertically has been solved. Now the ones we have horizontally have remedy to them, right? We're free from protecting ourselves. We're free to enjoy this welcome place we have. And listen, we are free to be on mission towards those that the culture looks at and says, you shouldn't be hanging with that person. You shouldn't be talking to that person. You shouldn't be even attempting to do life with that person. That's what I'd like to talk about. If we were to do any application to this, ask yourself, who are you not willing to build with? Who are you not willing to do life with in any way, shape, or form? Here's the second question. Can there be reconciliation? Can there? Now, I genuinely mean that question. Can there be? Sometimes the answer is no, right? You see, forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. They're different. Now, we use them interchangeably, but we fail when we do that, right? Reconciliation is an outworking of forgiveness. Forgiveness is where we we allow the offense of others to land at the feet of Jesus. Forgiveness is where we release someone of their offense against us and we give justice to God, right? And so when we forgive others, it's driven by the fact that God has forgiven us. That's what forgiveness is. Now, reconciliation is an outworking of that, where enemies become friends. That's the quickest, simplest definition I've ever heard on reconciliation, enemies becoming friends, Because we had irreconcilable differences, and we were enemies, and we have been made friends. And this is something that Paul says we should aim to do. He says this in 2 Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Now, reconciliation, although it's something that we aim for, it has degrees and shades to it. And it's colored by wise discernment and even timing. In fact, I've seen people, not meaning to, but I've seen people innocently try to rush injured folks into a reconciled relationship, and they've done great damage when they've done that. All right? So I'll speak carefully if you listen to me carefully on this, because I don't want to make the same mistake. Sometimes the depth of transgression or sin is so weighty, there needs to be a pause before there's reconciliation. Sometimes. Sometimes the aggressor and the one who is sinning against someone and hurting someone, sometimes they're not growing and they're not repenting. And to throw someone back into that relationship is to throw them right back into a feedback loop. And more damage and more damage and more damage is going to come. So just a quick example. There's two people that are a part of a church. Maybe even not the same local church, just a part of God's church. And they're just used to doing life together. 
But then one sins against the other, and it costs great financial harm. Is that something that can be reconciled down the road? I would argue, yeah. I would argue, yeah. But what if it was someone that was abused sexually as a child for six years? Would you put someone like that back in a situation where they needed to reconcile with their abuser? I would say probably not. At least, at least not for a while. I mean, there's so many questions. Where is the state of the abuser? How old? Is it, is it even a kid anymore? Do they even live in the same place anymore? That's why you need wisdom. So we know that we need to forgive. And we know that reconciliation depends on certain variables. Rushing this in some cases can do great damage. It can hurt people. But as a general rule, generally, Paul is saying we are supposed to aim for this as far as it depends on us. As far as it depends on us. Those aren't my words. Again, those are Paul's. Romans 12, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So this is something that we're supposed to aim to do. Yet Paul qualifies it by saying, do it as far as it depends on you. Because remember, whenever you sin against somebody else, and then you try to go and reconcile with them, maybe you've been there. Sometimes they're just not ready for that. They're not having it. They're like, yeah, I'm not ready to be bros with you. I'm barely able to forgive you on a good day. The other six days of the week, I'm not even forgiving you, right? So they're not having it. They're not ready to reconcile. You've done as far as you can. The rest you're going to have to place in God's hands, okay? And then again, some people will break you, and they will hurt you, and they'll deliver pain and damage, and they won't repent. And maybe they want to try to restore and reconcile, but for you to put yourself back in that position is going to bring more damage than ever before. And he might need a pause, a serious pause. This is why, I mean, can you see why we need the Holy Spirit for this? How messy this is? Forgiveness is messy. Reconciliation is times 10. Because we're aiming for something that the world doesn't do. The world says, let ex-friends be ex-friends. Put them behind you. Just look in front of you. Did they hurt you? Yeah, they hurt me. Leave them in the dust. They're done. We're, we're talking about doing something different. So we need the Holy Spirit for that. I appreciate Ray Ortland saying this in this way. He says, our churches should be the most reconciling, peaceable, relaxed, happy places in town. We are so open to enemies, so meek in the face of insults and injuries, so forgiving toward the undeserving. If we do make people angry, let this be the reason. We, we refuse to join in their selfish battles. We're following a higher call. We are the peacemakers, the true sons of God. May our ministries of reconciliation be so obvious, we cause scandal all over town. Man. We are supposed to aim for this with great caution. Aim for reconciliation as far as it depends on you. And you... you your best to have the Holy Spirit help you with this and to get others in your life to get some clarity around you, to help you see clearly. Let's finish the passage in one big chunk. We're going to go to verse 7 and we're going to finish it off all the way to verse 13 as we close this out here in a minute. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, Though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ 
and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And this is going to be helpful for us. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Man, man, do not lose heart in what we're talking about and holding the gospel high and taking this idea of the local church, the ecclesia, and holding it high before a mocking culture that doesn't even understand it. To hold it high, do not lose heart. As you're seeing walls pulled down, whether it's a macro wall or a micro wall between someone very close to you, do not lose heart. I mean, if you've ever had to pull these kinds of walls down, these walls of hostility, and carry relationships through irreconcilable differences, maybe you know, maybe you can agree with me, it's easy to lose heart. It's easy. I have broken relationships I would love to see restored. I do. I have walls and differences that kind of look irreconcilable, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit is strong enough to assemble us, to combine us, to gather us in whatever way that looks like. Now, I'm not hopeful like this every day because I'm just like you. I wake up and I think, nope, that's done. That's in the history books, maybe in heaven. But then some days I have hope because I see what the Holy Spirit has done. Some of you, you have damage in some very key relationships, and it all looks unfixable and very uphill. Mother's Day is not always easy for mothers. And it's not always easy for kids because of this because of walls that have been built, because of damage that has been done, and because of, yes, irreconcilable differences. So as we meditate on what looks unfixable and what looks uphill, can we meditate on what the Holy Spirit did with a dead body in a tomb? Can we meditate at least on what looked even more impossible? The fact that God ripped down a wall that was between us and him as we were busy throwing rocks at him. He was busy recovering us even though we were irretrievable. Can we not lose heart? Not lose heart. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, and it is, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see, the work that you're doing now to live peaceably with all as much as it depends upon you, that's eternal work. It's eternal work, even if you don't see the results of it now. So this quorum Deo living that we're doing, that we're talking so much about the last several weeks, it's face-to-face -face with God, but because we're face-to-face -face with God, we're face-to-face -face with each other now, too. That's just what happens. We're built into a structure where he is our cornerstone, but you're the brick right next to my brick. We're doing life together. And what do we do? We break each other. But then we reconcile. And I think a church that tackles this with joy reveals and portrays Jesus who tackled the cross with joy, for the, or with joy set before him. 
So go ahead and stand with me as we finish this out, because what we're going to do now is we're about to shift into a segment of the service where we have music, and you're going to be given an opportunity to meditate on some of these things. Yes, sing, follow the words, follow the band, but know that we will have communion elements in the back. That is a fantastic time to wrestle around that table. Wrestle with each other if you're in the room with somebody else that you have an irreconcilable difference with, that maybe... Maybe you can see reconciliation. Maybe there could be some restoration today. Communion is a great place to ponder. A couple questions. We could put them up on the screen too. Can you start the process of moving towards someone you've had a wall of hostility with? Can you do that? Are you, as far as it depends on you, are you able to move the ball down the field? Maybe you're not. But maybe you are. And what can you realistically hope for? What can you expect in that? And who can help you? Who can you invite into that and share that moment with where they can get eyes on it and say, no, bro, that's not, that's not a place of reconciliation. You're just being sensitive. Or no, you're being way too slack. You should have done this years ago. Let me help you. Let's put some action plans down. It helps to get some clarity because we, we're so sensitive inside and we're, we're in the weeds and we don't see as clearly as we think. This is one of the reasons the community is so helpful. But as you take the blood and the bread, consider who it is that you were building with and who it is that you've been called to build with, whether there's a wall between you and them. Consider where forgiveness has been tough for you. Consider where reconciliation has happened and where it has not happened. But don't go to the table with the culture's dribble of just leave, leave the broken pieces behind you. No need to go back and pick them up. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't let another service go by without asking the hard question, what depends on me? What depends on me? Right? And if you're lost in here, when I say lost, I mean you haven't had a place where you have called Jesus Lord and have experienced his friendship. You're not a son or a daughter of the king. You might be a searcher. You might be a skeptic. You might be something in between. But you're not at a place where you'd say you love Jesus or in a love relationship with Jesus. I would say all the damaged relationships you have around you, and I know you have them, all the damaged relationships you have around you are just an echo of one big broken relationship. That's why you have those broken relationships. It's because you have one primary one that's broken between you and God. A big wall of a lot of hostility between you and that God. It's a broken relationship. The only thing that can level that wall is the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're feeling like God is moving you to do something today, I would submit to you today to give your life to Christ, to accept the work that the Holy Spirit is doing as he is massaging your heart, and to give yourself entirely to the work of God. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in our people. I thank you for Mother's Day, for sure. I just know that there's still today a lot of irreconcilable differences between moms and kids, kids and moms, between us and our neighbors, people that we work with, people we have in our families, people, people across the room, just irreconcilable differences. 
So Father, I pray that you would fix our gaze on you and how you brought down the largest wall and how all the other walls crumbled and now we are in this ecclesia, this church, where there are no walls and because we've been kissed by so much grace, we could rush into the world as healthy missionaries who ponder and marvel and speak of the great gospel of what you have done. Lord, heal our hearts. A damaged heart is so hard It's so hard for a damaged heart to to even attempt reconciliation. Minister to us, Father, but minister to us by showing us how beautiful your gospel is. We would marvel after your great strength and might and thoughtfulness of us. You're so thoughtful and so kind. And we love you in this moment, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.